How would you sum up last year in a word? Maybe COVID, maybe darkness. If you're anything like me, it's sofa. Um, I, we had to replace our sofa. I'd worn a very nice dent in it uh, that meant the padding no longer did its job. Uh, but the less I talk about that, probably the better. But I wonder if there's another word we could use for last year. Another word that sums up really what's been on the hearts and minds of the world. And at no, it's not COVID. I wonder if that word is justice. You see, we've been hit in the news with too many heartbreaking stories. Sarah Everard, Harry Dunn, George Floyd. We've, been, we've seen calls for racial justice, justice for women. Even, I came across this a few weeks ago, climate justice. But that raises the question of what is needed for justice? This word that has pretty much filled up Twitter, Facebook, everything else this last year. What do we need for justice to happen? Now, at the moment, we're in the middle, or rather, America is in the middle of the George Floyd case. Derek Chauvin is in court. And there is a jury that has been tasked with judging whether he is innocent or guilty of murder. They've been asked to make a judgment about him because justice cannot be brought unless there's been a judgment of right or wrong. Or maybe let's have a look at another example. The doping scandal currently that uh, is enveloping Team Sky and the British cycling team. We have judged that it's wrong or rather those in the know have said that this is wrong. We know it is intrinsically and intuitively wrong for athletes to try and get an advantage by taking illegal substances. And so we call for justice. And that might look like a range of different things, but at least for sports people, it's bans from other games. It's stripping of medals that they won whilst they were illegally taking these substances. It's perhaps fines. And then maybe for doctors or coaches, if they've broken the law, it's imprisonment. But if we don't have a problem with justice in these situations, that has got me thinking. If you're anything like me, if, if this is something that you think about a lot or maybe only recently over this last year, why is it perhaps that we find justice for racial problems? We find justice for doping scandals easier to come to terms with than God's justice than God calling for judgment on what is wrong in the world. Maybe you got a little bit nervous. I know I did when I was given this sermon, when you look at the title of it, Psalms of Judgment. Palms getting sweaty, the stomach feeling the butterflies, maybe clogging in the throat. Maybe that's just me. Maybe you found the psalm that Hannah has just read for us hard to listen to. Hard when there are certain verses or words that come up that instinctively don't seem right. Because you see, in a world of speak your truth and find what is right for you, what place is there for telling someone they're wrong? More than that, what place is there for telling someone that God says they're wrong? We start wondering, are people going to think that God is out to get them? 
If we have our heavenly father, surely like any good father, he won't judge us. Or if now we have grace through Jesus Christ, surely that means there can be no judgment. And so we shouldn't talk about it. Now, I can't address all of these questions now. Uh, You probably don't want me to. Anyone who knows me knows that I can talk at length. I can talk the back legs off a donkey, although I've never quite understood that phrase. But there's a bigger question. Why talk about all of this? Why bother talking about judgment? We are people of grace. Let's leave this issue aside. It's an Old Testament issue, some might say. Let's just not bother talking about it. Well, let's have a look at the Psalms. In verses 7 and 8, Asaph, the the writer, or we could say the composer of this psalm, says, So that they should set their hope in God, and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. See, Asaph here is saying Israel needs to look back to be able to go forwards. They need to look back at God's judgment on Egypt and on Israel to appreciate where they are now and to be given the strength, the focus, the hope that they need to carry on going following God. They have to avoid the very real danger of repeating the same errors and sins that led to their fathers dying in the wilderness. But why does looking back help us go forwards? Well, notice that phrase Asaph used, that their children would set their hope in God. Now, I'm not particularly a football fan. I I played a lot of hockey. Um, But when Leicester City won the Premier League, As far as I could remember, they were always talked about in relation to how they were the underdogs. They were not meant to be beating teams like Man City, like Man United, like Chelsea. They weren't meant to beat them. They weren't meant to be in the position where they won the title. They just simply, that's not where they were meant to be. But knowing this makes their victory even more amazing. This tiny little uh, city team from Leicester beating out the giants of British footballing establishment. Or let's take the moon. I myself am a physicist. I I teach physics at a secondary school. I love physics. Now we can get something like 57 million pictures of the moon, according to Bing. But none of those pictures can mean anything to us in comparison to the pictures that Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong took on the moon when they were the very first people to ever set foot on it. But why? Well, you see, they spent 24 hours inside something the size of a large family car to get to the moon. They spent over 10 years training as astronauts and many more years before that training to be either pilots um, or other armed forces personnel. They were then strapped to what has been described as a massive bomb aimed at the moon and someone flicked a trigger and fired them towards it. In looking back what they went through and looking back at what could potentially at the time have been a horrific explosion, dying in a ball of flame, they get to look back at those pictures on the moon and they appreciate even more what those pictures stand for 
and what they remind them of. And you see, it's like this with the Israelites. Asaph is calling them to look at how they were so that they can trust in God more. But this gives another question. Why is God's judgment of Israel justice that we can trust? Now, I've made a few mistakes at work. I know that we all have, but I perhaps have made a bigger mistake than most. You see, I was put in charge of the cake rota. Now, if you've ever been in an office on a Friday when someone is expecting cake, you know the weight of responsibility that rests on my shoulders each week to make sure that cake is there, that someone is bringing it in, that it is good quality and that there's enough of it for everyone. Now, I've had a few times where I've forgotten to sort out the cake rota. And whilst people were mad, mostly because they were on a sugar low and they were expecting a pretty quick sugar high, the main phrase that kept coming out is, don't worry, Matt, you're only human. We all make mistakes. You'll get it right next time. That one maybe was said a bit passively, aggressively. You'll make it right next time. But I think this helps us see, and I'm sure you've had situations like this, because we know that it's hard for us to judge others. Because we make mistakes just like them. Who are we to judge someone else when in all likelihood tomorrow I'm going to make the same mistake that I was having a go at that person for? There's just something doesn't seem right about judging someone for for that reason. Well, in Psalm 5 verse 4, David says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. In other words, God doesn't make the same mistakes we do. In fact, he doesn't make any mistakes. He doesn't even enjoy or entertain the idea of making mistakes. He will never forget the cake rotor if he's ever on it. But we also see this in this psalm. So if we have a look at verses 38 to 39, Asaph says, God restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that the Israelites were but flesh. A wind that passes and comes not again. See, God here is aware of Israel's failings. He is perfect. He does not make the mistakes they do. Yet here he is aware and understanding of the fact that they're not like him. That in many ways they are less than him. They are but flesh. Compared to God who has no beginning and has no end, they vanish like that. But God has just saved Israel from Egypt. He's led them out to safety. He has liberated them from their captors to fulfill promises he made over 400 years ago to their forefather, their ancestor, Abraham. But they still don't trust him. They rejected God and God put up with them. He remembered they were but flesh. They accused God of not being able to give them food. God gave them food. He made food food rain down from the sky. He made birds to literally just fall at the feet of the Israelites so that they had food. They said God wanted them to die of thirst. God split a rock and made water flow out from it. They said God had brought them out into the wilderness to die, that it would be better to go back and be killed by the Egyptians. But every day God gave them what they needed. He kept them safe. And he made them prosper. You see, God here isn't out to get Israel. 
He wasn't waiting for them to slip up so he could uh, rub his hands together in glee and go, I've got to you. He's not trying to boast about how good he is to make them feel worse and make himself feel better. He's understanding. He's patient and compassionate with them. He is, as we see him describe himself in Exodus chapter 34, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. In other words, he is more patient and caring that we could ever imagine. He is abounding in love that never changes, love that never gives up, love that is steadfast. He forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. Now these three words, they're different words that pick up on different aspects of what we generally call sin, but they're all talking about the same thing, rejection of God. But he doesn't let injustice go unpunished. He's not so kind and fluffy and loving as the world wants him to be that he doesn't then care about when people do things wrong. So why does God need to judge the Israelites? If he is the one person who could judge them, why does he need to? Well, we've, we've had a hint of this already, but it's nothing new going on with the Israelites. You see, what we see here in the psalm gets to the heart of our culture as well. Our culture says we can't judge people. Everyone's trying their best. Even if in the extremest of circumstances you are in a position to judge someone, that person's just trying their best. Because to be who we are is to express ourselves, to take what is inside of us and make it known outside of us. So to judge someone isn't to say that they've done actions that are wrong. It's to say who they are are wrong. That that part of themselves that they're expressing is wrong. The problem is that the culture is right. You see, verse 8, as Asaph points out, the problem with the Israelites was their hearts, their spirits. They didn't make mistakes. They didn't do wrong actions. At their core, their hearts, they were wrong. They didn't trust God. You see, sin is about our hearts, and that then shows itself in our actions. The heart represents who we are, the core of what makes us us. But we see in this psalm, it comes up again and again. I wonder if you caught it whilst it was being read. Verse 17, they sinned still more against God. Verse 22, they did not believe God and did not trust his saving power. Verse 32, despite God's wonders, they did not believe. Verse 36, but they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. In this world and this year of injustice, here is one of the greatest injustices the world has ever seen. Every offence against God, every time Israel didn't believe him, though they'd seen the Red Sea parted, though they had seen God take 600,000 Israelites and led them through the wilderness, fed them, cared for them, protected them day after day, they didn't believe him. They didn't trust him. 
God, but still God atoned for their iniquity because he had compassion on them until one day he'd had enough and he judged them. So where does true justice come from? It comes from God. Why? Because God alone doesn't make mistakes. He's not vindictive. He's not looking to catch people out. He's not boasting in his ability to show us where we're wrong. But he's gracious and compassionate. He's patient with us. And every judgment he ever makes is based on all of the evidence. So why, if you're like me, do we find it so hard when justice is focused on ourselves? You see, the Israelites wouldn't have had an issue with Asaph describing God's judgment of Egypt. They were the baddie. They were the oppressor. They were deserving justice. They had humiliated and oppressed the Israelites for generations. And so they needed to be judged. There was no doubt in anyone's minds that Egypt were in the wrong and justice needed to be brought. But they wouldn't have liked being reminded of God's judgment of their fathers. Did you notice in verse two, Asaph says these are dark sayings from of old. They are things that people don't naturally want to go into. They're things that people might be inclined to try and hide. And so much so, actually, Asaph then reminds them to not hide these sayings from their children. Because like us and our culture now, it, the Israelites didn't naturally want to hear this. But Asaph is clear. They must know it. They must think about when God's judgment comes close to home. The spiritual lives of their children depend on it. The very existence of Israel depends on their children knowing God's judgment of their fathers. Why? Because if we don't look at ourselves the way that we look at society, if Israel doesn't look at itself the way it looks at Egypt, we become hypocrites and Pharisees. We care more about being seen to do the right thing, to call out the latest injustice, to be the leader of the pack on Twitter, than actually caring about justice. We let ourselves do the very things that we would condemn in others. We come up with a million excuses for why it's okay for us to do it, but why that person must be silenced, why that person needs to be called out, why that person must publicly apologize for what they've done. And we do all of this because we can't stand to look at ourselves in God's mirror. We skip over passages like this one from Romans 1. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, 
but give approval to those who practice them. Now, this might sound at first hearing like Paul is accusing others and not looking to himself. Paul setting himself up as the hypocrite. But as we look at the context around this passage, Paul is talking about everyone, including himself. Now, perhaps we skip over these kinds of passages because we read them and we see no see <laughs> see no hope. You see, when I was in my second year at uni, I got very into theology. I got very into reading the Bible, and suddenly I had the answers. I became exceptionally proud and arrogant. You had a question about God, about Jesus, about theology. I can tell you. I can tell you why that person's wrong. I can tell you why you're wrong. I can tell you why you're not a Christian if you don't believe everything I tell you. I was horrible to my friends, to my family, to Katie, who at the time was my girlfriend, but now is my wife. She put up with a lot, but she didn't give up on me. She should have, and at times I really don't know why she didn't, but she didn't. She challenged who I was then. She sat me down, she told me, she showed me how what I was doing was hurting her and others. Challenged me to ask myself whether this is actually the way Jesus was. Now, if she'd left me there, I would have had no hope. All that has happened is I've been shown where I'm wrong. Much like as we listen to perhaps Romans chapter one, it's, okay, Paul, this is how I'm wrong. This is what's wrong with me. In the same way, if Psalm 78 had ended at verse 67, Israel would have had no hope. Forever under God's judgment, stuck in a cycle of saying they'll follow God, rejecting God, not believing in him, not trusting him, God showing his judgment, them repenting, and then again and again and again and again. They would have had no chance of redemption, no hope of salvation. But look at verse 68. But God. Now, if you're ever reading a passage like this in this psalm or Romans or anywhere in the Bible and you read, but God, stop. If there are two words in the whole of the Bible that should give us hope, they are but God. If there were two words I would ever want to hear when I was at the lowest points of my life, they are but God. Have you ever wondered how Paul was able to show his face in any church once he'd been converted after his job, a job that he applied for, was killing Christians? Have you ever wondered why his letter to the Romans is one of the most loved letters he ever wrote? Yet it starts off declaring God's judgment and the reason why every single person should be in hell. Have you been thinking why Asaph says that by looking at God's judgment, Israel's children would set their hope in God? It's here in verse 68. But God chose a servant. He chose a shepherd. David made him king, gave David the task of shepherding Israel. 
But this isn't justice. In fact, we see from David's life, he is far from the person that we want to be in charge of justice. And again, if we look at Israel, even after David, they rebel again and again and again. They carry on rebelling after David, after Solomon, his son, to the point that God sends them into captivity in Babylon. You see, God raising up his servant David was justice delayed. A promise that justice would come by another servant. A servant who was a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. A servant whom Isaiah prophesied about. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the servant who would bring justice, but also bear the punishment for our injustice. This is the servant who would judge the world, but who was judged in our place. This is why Paul, a killer of Christians, could proclaim with confidence, there is therefore now no condemnation, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Clarence Jordan has a quote that I've, I've heard quite a lot that is used often to sum up what Paul is saying here. The resurrection of Jesus was simply God's unwillingness to take our no as an answer. But it's more than that. So much more than that. It's not just our no. God is unwilling to take us as we are, to leave us to the judgment we deserve. He is unwilling to let us stay the way we are. You see, Jesus has borne the judgment of God for you. He is the reason why we can read passages that show us every part of us that is under God's judgment. Because he was judged instead of us. And so we are free. God made him who knew no sin to be sin. In order that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When I think about who I was three years ago. The pain that I caused people I care about the most. Katie's grace amazes me. But she didn't bear the consequences of my sin because she is some amazing person, though she is. She endured it because she knew that Jesus had been judged instead of her and instead of me. Because Jesus had shown her his infinite grace. So she decided to show grace to me. And in doing so, she helped me see even more clearly the grace of God in Jesus Christ. You see, in looking back to God's judgment, we appreciate even more the wonder of his grace. Don't hide from God's judgment. 
Don't try and bury everything you've done in the past and hope it will go away. It won't. Bring it to the cross. Bring it to the feet of Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall inherit eternal life.